0: Part 1 of Tchaikovsky and his orchestral music by Louis Biancoli, this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Few great names in music spell as much magic to the average concert-goer as that of Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky. In almost every musical form will be found a work of his ranking high in popularity, and quite deservedly so. Tchaikovsky's music brims with a warm humanity and stirring drama. The themes and feelings are easy to grasp. The personal, intimate note is so strong in his music that we find it natural, while listening to the Pathetic Symphony, or the Nutcracker Ballet Suite, for example, to share Tchaikovsky's joys and sorrows. His music seems to take us into his confidence and show us the secret places of his heart. Although Tchaikovsky's range of moods is wide, from the whimsical play of light fantasy to the stormy outcries of anguish, essentially he was a melancholy man, in his music as in his life. Perhaps it is the genuineness of his music in conveying great pathos and suffering that has drawn millions to his symphonies and concertos. A frank sincerity and warm-heartedness well from his music the best of his melodies linger hauntingly in the mind and heart so long as sincere feeling expressed in sincere artistic form can move the hearts of men tchaikovsky's music will continue to hold a high place in the concert hall and opera house Only Beethoven and Mozart can rival Tchaikovsky in the number of compositions in various musical forms that stand out as repertory favorites. Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto is as much a request item as Beethoven's. The Pathétique Symphony ranks with the three or four enduring favorites of the repertory. Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Ballet is probably the most popular suite of its kind in music. The opera Eugene Onegin, a masterpiece worthy to stand beside some of the best Italian and German operas, is widely loved, even outside Russia. Tchaikovsky's piano concerto, or at any rate the big opening theme, is doubtless known to more people than all other piano concertos put together. The overture fantasies, Romeo and Juliet and Francesca da Rimini, rank with the most popular in that form, and the overture eighteen twelve is an international hit with music lovers of all ages and stages. Tchaikovsky's song, None But the Lonely Heart, is better known to many music lovers than most of the songs of Brahms and Schubert, and the great string quartet contains a melody familiar to every follower of popular song trends. For of all the classical composers, Tchaikovsky has been a veritable gold mine as a lucrative source of themes for popular arrangement. Yet this sad and sensitive musical genius, who knew so well how to reach the human soul, surprisingly began his career as a clerk in the St. Petersburg Ministry of Justice. Like other great Russian composers, Tchaikovsky arrived at music by a circuitous route, almost by accident. Mussorgsky, one recalls, was long an officer in the Tsar's army before he switched to music and borodine always regarded music as a secondary pursuit to his medical practice and his laboratory experiments in chemistry tchaikovsky was first a lawyer but soon he found court action and the preparation of briefs tiresome and unsavory toil so at twenty-one he returned to his first love which was music Born on May 7, 1840, Tchaikovsky had begun to study piano at the age of seven. When he was ten, his father, a director of a foundry at Botkins, with next to no interest in music, took the family to St. Petersburg. There, young Peter continued his musical studies, never, though, with any thought of preparing for a career in music. Yet later, even while studying law, he went on playing the piano and taking part in the performances of a choral society. Although he amused friends by improvising on the piano, few detected any signs of creative genius. At 21, Tchaikovsky made his crucial break. He abandoned law, began earnestly to master musical theory, and resolved to risk poverty and starvation by devoting himself to music professionally. Today we can only applaud his decision. The repertory would be the poorer without his music. Besides, it is not likely that the law lost a great practitioner when Tchaikovsky bade it farewell. His first important step was to enroll in the Russian Musical Society, later to become the St. Petersburg Conservatory. There Anton Rubinstein, the renowned pianist and composer, then teaching composition and orchestration, exerted a lasting influence on him. At that time Anton's brother Nicholas was founding the Moscow Conservatory. Impressed by Tchaikovsky's brilliant showing at the St. Petersburg School, he engaged him as instructor in harmony for the new Moscow organization. Tchaikovsky held the post for eleven years. The pay was scant, but there were weightier compensations. Nicholas Rubinstein gave the young man a room in his Moscow house, encouraged him to compose, introduced him around, and gave him sound advice on sundry matters. Best of all, he produced many of Tchaikovsky's early compositions. Tchaikovsky, loyal and devoted in all his ties, never forgot his friend after rubinstein's death he dedicated his trio in memory of a great artist to the great man who had given him his real start in music and a creative life during his second year at the moscow conservatory tchaikovsky fell madly in love with the french soprano Desiree artaud then touring russia when the indecisive russian wasted time weighing the advantages and disadvantages of marriage a spanish baritone named padilla came along made violent love to mademoiselle herto and hurried her off to the altar before she could catch her breath and notify her russian suitor We nevertheless owe the fickle french lady a debt of gratitude without the emotional disturbance tchaikovsky might not have been moved to write the romeo and juliet overture fantasy his first serious rebuff in love had at any rate paid dividends in art from then on tchaikovsky wrote at a feverish pace Whenever his duties at the conservatory could spare him, he retired to his study and wrote symphonies, overtures, operas, chamber music, songs, and religious choruses. Sometimes a gnawing doubt in his own talents assailed him. To his friends he wrote voluminous letters complaining of the strong sense of inferiority bedeviling his work there were attacks of bleak gloom and diffidence lasting weeks trips to the country or to italy and switzerland were often needed to restore his damaged nervous system and jarred self-confidence to normalcy unfavorable reviews stung him like wasps and while moscow often evidenced great enthusiasm for his music st petersburg was harder to please the press there was often virulent with abuse Then Tchaikovsky pinned great hopes on his operas Eugene Onegin and Pique Dame, the Queen of Spades. Both proved fiascos at their premieres, though the public and press later revised their opinion drastically. Moreover, reports reached him of the cold reception accorded his Romeo and Juliet in Paris and the catcalls greeting his music in Vienna and there was a music critic named Eduard Hanslick in Vienna who kept Tchaikovsky awake nights wondering what new critical blast was awaiting his latest Viennese premiere. Ironically America and England were the only two countries instantly attracted to Tchaikovsky's music. There his prestige rose with each new symphony or overture. Cambridge University conferred an honorary doctor's degree on him in 1893 europe was soon to be won over however despite an often hostile press the music publics of france germany and austria began clamoring for more and more of his music and conductors were forced to acquiesce but to the end he remained a sorrowing and morose man hypersensitive even morbidly so but almost always the soul of kindliness and punctilio When, on the invitation of Walter Damrosch, Tchaikovsky came to America in 1891, he was widely acclaimed by public and press, while here he gave six concerts in all, four in New York, one in Baltimore, and one in Philadelphia. In New York he was guest of honor on the programs of the New York Symphony Society, celebrating the opening of the Music Hall, now Carnegie Hall. The festival lasted from May 5 to May 9, and Tchaikovsky was widely feted socially and professionally. He conducted several of his own works in the hall, constructed largely from funds provided by the steel magnate Andrew Carnegie. The year 1877 is an important one in the chronicle of Tchaikovsky's life, He made his one disastrous experiment in marriage with a romantic-minded young conservatory student named Antonina Milyukov. The girl had aroused his pity and alarm by her passionate avowals of love and equally passionate threats of suicide. The story is discussed below in my account of the Fourth Symphony, which grew partly out of that distressing episode. Suffice it here to note that the experience was so shattering to Tchaikovsky that he attempted to end his life by standing up to his neck at night in the freezing waters of the Neva River. Antonina eventually died in an insane asylum. Tchaikovsky formed another alliance that year, one far more profitable and far less nerve-wracking than his short tie with Mademoiselle Melukhov. This was his famous friendship with Nadezhda von Meck a wealthy and cultivated widow. Out of profound admiration for his music and a probable romantic hope to become Mrs. Tchaikovsky, Madame von Meck settled an annuity amounting to three thousand dollars on the destitute and ailing composer. The gift continued for thirteen years. Many letters about life, music, and people were exchanged between Tchaikovsky and his Lady Bountiful. The two never met, however. Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony is dedicated to this remarkable woman who was the most famous fairy godmother in music. Although Tchaikovsky himself thought of the Pathétique Symphony as his crowning masterpiece, the premiere on October 28, 1893, in St. Petersburg proved a disappointment. Tchaikovsky took it bitterly. Two weeks later, however, the tables were turned. Everybody acclaimed it warmly, but Tchaikovsky was not there to bow his acknowledgments. He had fallen victim to the cholera epidemic then raging in St. Petersburg. Though warned by the authorities, Tchaikovsky drank some unboiled water on November 2nd. Four days later he was dead no symphony was more appropriately named than this melancholy masterpiece the pathetique symphony the brooding phrases of which sound truly like the swan song of a tired and abysmally disillusioned man of genius marches overtures fantasias etc marsh slav opus 31 the March Slav stands foremost among Tchaikovsky's marches, of which he wrote numerous, including several incorporated in his operas and suites. Most of them were composed for special purposes or occasions. There is the Marche Solennelle written for the law students, which figured on the housewarming program at the opening of Carnegie Hall in May 1891, besides a Marche Militaire, which he wrote for the band of the Tsar's 98th Infantry Regiment in eighteen eighty three the city of moscow requisitioned a coronation march from him earlier Tchaikovsky had written a march in honor of the famous general Skobely, but he held it in such low esteem that he allowed it to circulate as the work of a non-existent composer named Sinopov. The Marsh Slav was written in 1876 for a benefit concert to raise funds for soldiers wounded in the Turco-Serbian War, which presently merged into a greater war between Turkey and Russia. It is based largely on the old Russian anthem, God Save the Emperor, and some South Slavonic and Serbian tunes. The main theme has been traced to the Serbian folk song, Sunse Valko Nefiles Jedanko, come my dearest why so sad this morning divided into three sections the march features fragments of the old czarist hymn in the middle portion how the hymn itself came to be written is told by its author alexis Fedorov Levov. in eighteen thirty three i accompanied the emperor nicholas during his travels in prussia and austria when he had returned to russia i was informed by count von Benkendorf that the sovereign regretted that we russians had no national anthem of our own and that as he was tired of the english tune which had filled the gap for many years he wished me to see whether i could not compose a russian hymn the problem appeared to me to be an extremely difficult and serious one when i recall the imposing british national anthem god save the king the very original french one and the really touching austrian hymn i felt and appreciated the necessity of writing something big strong and moving something national that would resound through a church as well as through the ranks of an army something that could be taken up by a huge multitude and be within the reach of every man from the dunce to the scholar the idea absorbed me but i was worried by the conditions thus imposed on the work with which i had been commissioned one evening as i was returning home very late i thought out and wrote down in a few minutes the tune of the hymn The next day I called on Shukovsky to ask him to write the words, but he was no musician and had much trouble to adapt them to the phrases of the first section of the melody. At last I was able to announce the completion of the hymn to Count von Beckendorf. The emperor wished to hear it and came on November 23 to the chapel of the imperial choir accompanied by the empress and the grand duke Michael i had collected the whole body of choristers and reinforced them by two orchestras the sovereign asked for the hymn to be repeated several times expressed a wish to hear it sung without accompaniment and then had it played first of all by each orchestra separately and then finally by all the executants together his majesty turned to me and said in french why it's superb and then and there gave orders to Count von Beckendorf to inform the Minister of War that the hymn was to be adopted for the army. The order to this effect was issued December 4, 1883. The first public performance of the hymn was on December 11, 1883, at the Grand Theater in Moscow. The Emperor seemed to want to submit my work to the judgment of the Moscow public. On December 25 the hymn resounded through the rooms of the Winter Palace on the occasion of the Blessing of the Colors. As proof of his satisfaction, the emperor graciously presented me with a gold snuff-box studded with diamonds, and in addition gave orders that the words, God save the Tsar, should be placed on the armorial bearings of the Vlivov family. Overture 1812, Opus 49 Although clearly a piece de cation prompted by the commemoration of a crucial page in Russian history, the Overture 1812 is a minor mystery in the Tchaikovsky catalogue. Supposedly, Nicholas Rubinstein commissioned Tchaikovsky in 1880 to write a festival overture for the Moscow exhibition. At least the composer admits as much in letters to Natchikov on Meck and the conductor Naprovnik but his friend, Kashkin, insisted the peace was requested for the ceremonies consecrating the Moscow Cathedral of the Savior, intended to symbolize Russia's part in the Napoleonic struggle. The overture, accordingly, pictured the great events beginning with the Battle of Borodino, September 7, 1812, and ending with Napoleon's flight from Moscow after the city was set aflame. To make it more effective, the work was to be performed in the public square before the cathedral. An electric connection on the conductor's desk would set off salvos of real artillery, and all Moscow would thrill with the thoughts of its heroic past. In any case, Tchaikovsky finished the overture at Kamenka in 1880, and though the cathedral was dedicated in the summer of 1881, there is no record of the planned street scene having come off. Instead, we find Tchaikovsky offering the overture to Edvard Naprovnik, then directing the Imperial Music Society of St. Petersburg. Last winter, at Nicholas Rubinstein's request, I composed a festival overture for the concerts of the exhibition entitled 1812. Tchaikovsky then makes a statement that possibly suggests an earlier rebuff could you possibly manage to have this played? It is not of great value, and I shall not be at all surprised or hurt if you consider the style of the music unsuitable to a symphony concert. Apparently Naprovnik turned down the overture, and its premiere was postponed to August 20, 1882, when it figured on an all-Tchaikovsky concert in the Art and Industrial Exhibition at Moscow. Tchaikovsky's attitude to the work is further expressed in the letter to his patroness saint Madame von Meck, there he speaks of the overture as very noisy and having no great artistic value, because it was written without much warmth of enthusiasm, and in a diary entry of the time he refers to it as having only local and patriotic significance. The patriotic significance, of course, is what gives the overture its raison d'etre as a motion picture of historical events tschaikowsky's brushstrokes are bold and obvious the French and Russians are clearly depicted through the use of the czarist national anthem and the marseilles Fragments of Cossack and Novgorod folk-songs enter the scheme, and the battle and fire scenes are as plain as pictures. As the overture develops, one envisions the clash of armies at Borodino, with the Russians stiffly disputing every step and the Marseillaise finally rising dominant. The Russians are hurled back, the French are in Moscow." finally the city is ablaze and the dismal rout begins as cathedral bells mingle with the roll of drums and the hymn god preserve thy people surges out in a paean of victory capriccio italien opus forty five Described by Edwin Evans as a bundle of Italian folk songs, the Capriccio Italien draws partly on published collections of such melodies and partly on popular airs heard by Tchaikovsky in 1880 while touring Italy. I am working on a sketch of an Italian fantasia based on folk songs, he notifies his patroness confidante, Nadezhda von Meck, from Rome on February 17, 1880 thanks to the charming themes some of which i have heard in the streets the work will be effective tchaikovsky's room at the hotel constanzi overlooked the barracks of the royal cuirassiers apparently the bugle call sounded nightly in the barracks yards contributed another theme heard in the streets for it may be heard in the trumpet passages of the introduction the italian fantasia was fully sketched out in rome and the orchestration begun With the title now changed to Capriccio Italien, the work was completed that summer on Tchaikovsky's return to Russia. Nicholas Rubinstein directed the premiere at Moscow on December 18, 1880. Six years later, Walter Damrosch introduced it to America at a concert in the Metropolitan Opera House, the precise date being November 6, 1886 after the introductory section the strings chant a lyric theme of slightly melancholy hue which the orchestra then develops later the oboes announce in thirds a simple folk melody of less sombre character This, too, is elaborately worked out before the tempo changes and violins and flutes bring in another tune. This promptly subsides as a brisk march section sets in, followed by a return of the opening theme. There is a transition to a lively tarantella, then another bright theme in triple rhythm, and finally the presto section with a second tarantella motif leading to a brilliant close. It is a piece of music which relies entirely on its orchestration for its effects, writes Evans in the Master Musician series. Its musical value is comparatively slight, but the coloring is so vivid and so fascinating, and the movement throughout so animated, that one does not realize this when listening to the work. It is only afterwards that one experiences certain pangs of regret that such a rich garment should bedeck so thin a figure." Suite for Strings, Souvenir de Florence, Opus 70. Compared with his output in other forms, Tchaikovsky's chamber music is small, consisting of an early quartet, of which only the first movement survives, three complete string quartets, a trio, and the Souvenir de Florence, written for violins, violas, and cellos, in pairs. As the title implies, the work grew out of a visit to Italy early in 1890, though as a clue to the mood and manner of the music, Souvenir de Florence is a better title for the first two movements than for the others. The remaining Allegretto Moderato and Allegro Vivace bear an Italian memory only insofar as much other music by Tchaikovsky and other composers may share the same quality. Even a marked Slavic character is evident in places which is only natural. As is well known, Tchaikovsky's overture fantasy, Romeo and Juliet, is often dubbed Romeo and Juliet of the Steppes. A first mention of the souvenir occurs in a letter to Ippolitov Ivanov, dated May 5, 1890, written shortly after Tchaikovsky's return from abroad. It is quoted by his brother Modeste, My visit brought forth good fruit. I composed an opera, Pique Ram, which seems a success to me. My plans for the future are to finish the orchestration of the opera, sketch out a string sextet, the souvenir, go to my sister at Kamenka for the end of the summer, and spend the whole autumn with you at Tiflis. On the following June 30, he communicated news of the sextet to his patroness Saint, Madame von Meck, hoping she would be pleased to hear about it i know your love of chamber music he writes and i hope the work will please you i wrote it with the greatest enthusiasm and without the least exertion in november tchaikovsky went to st petersburg for a rehearsal of peak tom while there he arranged for a private hearing of the sextet by friends the performance left him cold and he resolved to rewrite the scherzo and finale by the following May the work was thoroughly remodeled. It was not till June 1892, while in Paris, that he actually completed the revision to his satisfaction. The four movements comprise an Allegro con Spirito, D minor, 4-4, four, four, an Adagio cantabile E con moto, D major, 3-4, an Allegretto Moderato, A minor, 2-4, And an allegro vivace D minor, D major, two four. The form is largely that of the classical string quartet, though characteristically bold, and novel devices of color and structure abound. Often the strings are ingeniously treated to suggest wind instruments, and one senses Tchaikovsky's frequent striving for orchestral effects. Research has failed to unearth the opprobrious epithets Tchaikovsky is alleged to have heaped upon this slight but appealing work. End of part one.